0: This is a 3CR podcast.
1: And this is Published or Not. I was really looking forward to reading this book, The Unusual Abduction of Avery Conifer, because I haven't chatted with this author for ages. Welcome back to Published or Not, Ilsa Evans. Oh, thank you, Jan. And I've missed our conversations. (laughs) Ilsa, you have described your book, The Unusual Abduction of Avery Conifer, as a kaleidoscope of female voices. All these women of different ages and occupations are talking about that one incident. So who is Avery Conifer and what made this
2: abduction unusual? <laughs> well, Avery Conifer, a friend of mine thought it was a tree, but it's not a tree, it's a <laughs> child. A Four year old little girl who's very much loved by everybody in her family but ends up being caught up in a bit of a tug of war between the family members. Her mother's in jail and her father is a less than adequate parent. So the grandmothers get involved. So let's have a look at these two grandmothers. Shirley, she's not
1: 60. She's feeling 70, like a character of an old woman. Her husband doesn't even notice the bump on her head, but the hairdresser does. The hairdresser gives her a domestic violence helpline card. And then there's Beth. She's a very good planner from five years in the Army Reserve. But she's also very judgmental, especially about
2: women without earlobes. (laughs) I had such fun writing that. Can I just say that is not how I feel. But um, Beth has a a theory about just about everything and and Beth feels that she's unfailingly right in her theories. Yes, you're quite right, quite judgmental, very organised, very pedantic, almost the opposite from Shirley, who's much more of a ditherer. So with the two grandmothers, are they friendly? No, no, they're not. I mean, opposites don't attract in this case and I think Beth looks down her nose at Shirley somewhat and, and Shirley avoids Beth when possible because she feels like she's being judged. So uh, the two have obviously a lot to do with each other. They share a grandchild. So for the sake of the grandchild and their children, they've had a lot to do with each other over the years, but they've never really bonded. Shirley's son, Daniel, is the father. Beth's daughter, Cleo, is the mother.
1: So where did you
2: say Cleo was and why? Cleo is in jail at the the beginning of the book and she's in jail for contravening an intervention order that Daniel took out against her. So there's quite a lot of manipulation and friction and that has gone on in the background of that relationship. So she's in jail, which means that Avery was in the custody of her father um, and this is where the problems start to arise.
1: Well, Shirley visited Dan to find Avery at home all by herself and her annoyance with this upset Dan so he refuses to answer messages he's taken leave from his work and Avery's not a child care then he drops Avery over for a sleepover at Shirley's and she's thrilled but what does she see at bath time?
2: Well that's yes this is the the catalyst I suppose she's already got her concerns obviously from finding Avery being left at home by herself But when she gives Avery a bath, she finds um, a couple of bruises. And this, on top of her earlier concerns, gives rise to the actions that then rapidly unfold. Shirley doesn't sleep all that night. She makes plans. So at 5.40
1: in the morning, she's knocking on Beth's door. Let's hear from
2: page 37. I have a plan. Good to hear. Shirley flicked a glance at Avery as she lowered her voice. I'm going to ring in an hour or so, leave a message saying that I took her to the zoo for the day. Dan will be annoyed but probably also a little relieved given he went out last night. I figure he'll turn up about mid-afternoon, have a beer with his father. They won't start getting concerned until four, maybe five. I'll get a call on my mobile and that's when I'll say, I'm sorry but I'm not bringing her back until you sort yourself out, get some counselling. Maybe move back to our house for the duration. I'll tell him that he has until Friday. Beth's mouth had fallen open. Friday? Yes, I'll be spending the week at the beach. Shirley leaned forward. I'm sure he won't call the police. For starters, I'm his mother. And then there's Avery. He won't want them to see her. All of which means she sat back with a smug smile. Everything will be sorted in time for Mother's Day.
1: In time for Mother's Day. Well, that's in in a week's time. Well, Beth tries to work out a better plan, but there's another knock on the door. And this time
2: it's... Winsome. <laughs> <laughs> She's my favourite character. I had so much fun writing Winnie. Um, Winsome is uh, Shirley's mother. She's 89 years old. And I think she sprung into my mind because I think we often underestimate the older generation, particularly women. We have that sort of almost invisible and Winnie comes into that category, but she actually uses it to her advantage. So she, she doesn't mind too much being a little bit invisible because she's very tech savvy, quite manipulative, and people tend to overlook her.
1: As a quote, being ignored was a superpower of sorts as for Winnie.
3: Absolutely.
2: I want to be Winnie when I'm 89,
3: can I say?
1: <laughs> well, Shirley planned to be away until the following Sunday, which was Mother's Day. She wanted everything cleaned up by then, with Daniel agreeing to do a parenting course. But what did Daniel do instead?
2: Well, he I can't use the language on, on radio that <laughs> Daniel used, but one can imagine. Daniel has got some issues of control and He doesn't take kindly to his mother, forcing his hand like this. So he actually delivers an ultimatum of his own, and hence the unusual abduction. The unusual abduction. So I'm not sure what a usual abduction would be, can (laughs) I just say. I don't think you have usual ones. (laughs) I I, I think the unusual sprung to me because it's not often you would have grandmothers doing this, though. So the decision is to
1: continue hiding until Cleo comes out of jail. So there's airports, there's hire cars, there's hairdressers, all come into plan. But problems, if you meet someone you know or if you have an altercation in the street that gets filmed (laughs) and I've never heard a granny bitch fight. (laughs)
2: I think I thought that because the two didn't get on very well, it couldn't be suddenly all roses. And I thought there had to be an overboiling, I suppose, a boiling of emotions at some point. So that was tremendous fun to write as well, that scene in the street, but where they they get slightly physical, obviously not, um, nothing like a physical fight, but you would think outside a pub or something like that. But they do get slightly physical and they sort of let loose at each other and then realise, of course, that they're being filmed. Um, as you would be nowadays nothing can happen on the street without somebody putting
1: up a phone well being away longer required more planning and this is where Winnie came into her own she knew about turning off the setting location on the iPhones she was constantly checking her Fitbit and also she had three Twitter handles two Facebook identities and one Instagram and she also had paypal account which helped and this is a lovely quote and as I can see you'd loved writing her did you have a good nap mum oh what sort of deaf question is that at my age the only criteria for a good nap is if you wake up again (laughs) <laughs> Very nice, Elsa. <laughs> she also brings some understanding of each other to the women by her get to know each other word game. But it's the USBs now. Beth has a dog, and a, and a min- miniature schnauzer because if you go on the run, of course. Dan, as we said, is brought in the police. So there's Elsa, the detective. Now Elsa shuddered whenever there was references to the Frozen franchise. She's, she's not
2: quite physically the same as Elsa from Frozen, is she? <laughs> no, in fact, she's very much different. Elsa was another one of my favourite characters. I mean, Elsa has mother issues of her own. A mother <laughs> who is racist, sexist and homophobic. Yes, <laughs> yes she does, <laughs> And who, who texts her probably about three or four times a day from her nursing home. And her
1: partner in policing is who thinks Ella is a plotter is Beck in complete contrast. Beck is a stunner. She's younger. She's very career focused who refers to this case as the grandmother fiasco. How hard can it be? Three older women, one of them near ancient, a child and a rather distinctive dog. It's not exactly like looking for a needle in a haystack. And it's Beck who, is really concerned about their inability to find them, making them look fools by the media. The media. Why were they most interested in running this
2: story? I think it would be a newsworthy story, wouldn't it? I mean, it is a very unusual abduction. It is not your standard abduction. There's a lot of backstory there. You've got these two older ladies who've never to, you know, put a foot wrong in their entire lives plus the 89-year-old and the miniature schnauzer, and they're managing to elude the police for this amount of time. So I can imagine that it would grab the attention of the the media. And in this case, of course, they start making a regular segment of uh, tracking different um, people on the the programs and what have you. This
1: is Sunday Brunch, and it's got (laughs) four women on the panel, all very different and all adding different aspects to these stories. As... Zandra who leads the group on the panel. Grandmothers on the run, mystery, intrigue, quirkiness, hopefully the four-year-old was cute. Even the pet lovers were going to be glued to this one. This was going to be great for ratings but then they had to make stories every week and there's no sighting of this. No,
2: I think they assumed just like the police did though, mind you, I think Elsa's sort of barracking for the the grandmother's body in. But I think the media assumed it would be all done and dusted fairly quickly. And, of course, the more it stretched out, the more they had to dig the bottom of the barrel for people to come on their program.
1: (laughs) During these 52 days, a new female is introduced. Kristen, another quote, she lacked everything a woman of her age should have, husband, children, a house. She had been a bridesmaid three times. Another few years and she might as well start collecting Cats. She goes <laughs> on a Tinder date, and after three weeks, she is in love. So who's she in love with?
2: Well, just to complicate matters a little bit further, that's our charming Daniel, who is on Tinder and he pairs up with Kristen. I, I brought Kristen in because I think she exemplifies, you know, that social anxiety that. Many young women have about needing to have a partner and needing to be at certain points at certain points in their life, um, and so that's where Kristen came from, and she very quickly becomes very enmeshed in Daniel's life. So, what will happen,
1: Ilse Evans? A lot of your other books, especially Broken, written back in two thousand and seven, were serious. They dealt with emotional abuse, coercive control inflated sense of entitlement you've got all of that in this book but it's not near as serious is no and
2: I think this is my favorite way of writing it's it's taking social issues but lacing a thread of humour through it but it, it, not making those issues humorous but still I mean life is amusing even when serious things are happening and so I think my favorite sort of tapestry i suppose is being able to meld the two together and i've done that with a few others though mind you i think avery conifer is one of my favorites you're quite right broken sticks and stones there was no humor in those ones at all whereas this one most definitely
1: I started with talking about the kaleidoscope of females and what you've done here is you've broken away from the stereotypes of females too. You've given each one of these women a real character.
2: Thank you. And look, they're all flawed. Nobody's perfect in this book. They've all got their quirks and their flaws and their what have you. And I, I think when I first started writing and it was really about bringing together all these female voices and who are commenting on what's going on, in particular the, the grandmothers, because there's such a wealth of experience in with older women, such a depth of humility as well as wisdom. And I, I really wanted to bring that out with this book. Well, I think you did. So grandmothers may live on
1: the periphery of a family's life, but when Shirley and Beth suspect their granddaughter is being abused... They abduct her with much interest from police, media and, of course, their family in The Unusual Abduction of Avery Conifer by Ilsa Evans. Fantastic read. Thank you, Ilsa. Thanks, Dan. And now it's David's turn.
0: Negotiating the challenges of adolescence is made all the more difficult when conflict at home and balancing cultural demands are thrown into the mix as well. Sarah El-Sayed provides a unique glimpse into those concerns in her memoir, Muddy People. So, Sarah, welcome to 3CR.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: There's a sort of predictable aspect to that divide you face, given your Egyptian Muslim heritage. What was that like facing the school ground, shall we say, given your background?
3: It was quite difficult to negotiate. What I should be doing in the school grounds outside of the family home, you know, because we migrated from Egypt, from Alexandria in early 2002. So that was four months after 9-11. And so there were still these preconceived ideas of what Muslim people are, what they believe in and what they should be doing or what they shouldn't be doing, um, and particularly in Western communities as well. So it was sort of having to deal with those perceptions of us, uh, as well as the expectations that my parents and my family had of me, Um, you know, as a young Muslim girl, what I should be doing, what we felt was right, uh, and trying to reconcile that with what my school friends thought should be doing at that particular time or even their parents or even my teachers thought we should be doing at that particular time was difficult.
0: There are some genuinely funny moments where language is concerned in this memoir. Your father at one stage is told to placate someone a resident in a in a flat. I'm here to make you happy he says But it's the innuendo in the English language behind that. And he's totally misunderstood. There are all those sorts of things that uh, people have to face.
3: Totally. And that's particularly because um, my father's second, his second language is English. So Arabic is his first language, which is different from my mother and different from us as well as uh, their children. Um, So he faced an extra level of difficulty when it came to not only language, but making those relationships and connections with people here often his tone or the words that he said were misinterpreted to something else and sometimes it was funny like that he laughs about that you know he tells the story all the time and it's a funny one Uh, but then sometimes people will interpret the way that he speaks as coming across as you know aggressive or is being unfriendly when that's not the case at all oh sometimes it's miscommunication but sometimes it's just people willfully misinterpreting what he's trying to say It's quite common,
0: actually, in Australian culture. It goes back to Nino Colotti's, they're a weird mob, the Italian migrant taking on the Australians. But here's another thing. You also then go into some intimate detail, shall we say, uh, going through puberty and negotiating a one-piece bathing suit. And so there's a frustration you have meeting the demands of the culture and the changes you're going through
3: totally yes so we have this expectation on us well as muslim people in general not just women that um to be modest and that was something that i I grew up with like knowing that you know we don't wear bikinis and you know we don't we don't show off too much of our bodies if we can help it and but, you know, going to school in Queensland, southeast Queensland, where it's so hot and swimming carnivals, every every child is obviously wearing a bikini, um, even at the beach all wearing bikinis. It's really hard to be like, oh, why do I have to be the only one not to wear that? And so and that was that that chapter where I talk about the one piece wearing the one piece was the first chapter I wrote of this book. And it was actually quite difficult because, as you say, I go into some intimate detail about my body. I mean, that's something that I wanted to do. That's something I set out specifically to do. I wanted to be able to write openly and honestly about these things such as puberty, about women's bodies and young women growing up and going through these things, because it's something that I didn't necessarily see or was able to read growing up myself, and particularly from a Muslim woman's perspective, because it's quite distinct.
0: But the interesting thing here is you actually parallel it with an encounter with one of your teachers who seems to be having difficulty with her own body image.
3: That's right, yeah. So this was, that was a moment when I was um, in primary school where uh, a teacher made a comment uh, implying that we were speaking about her body in some particular way, uh, particularly her chest. Uh, and we were like, as children, we weren't, I think she was just an assumption that she made at that time, which was very weird and very off putting for us. And yes, yeah, she was, she was a white woman. Uh, and so, and you're right, it points out the fact that these ideas of our bodies and showing parts of our bodies aren't necessarily exclusive to cultural groups. The idea of having to be modest or like feeling the compulsion to be modest isn't exclusive to a cultural group, but it's definitely distinct in how we experience it and how others see us.
0: Now, there's another layer, and there are, in fact, several layers to this memoir. You have an incident where you're playing a Sims game, a simulated world, and we can read this, on several levels, are you simply playing a game? Your father considers it haram to play God like this, but it almost seems to me that this Sims game is serving as a metaphor for what's going on in your own family and in people's lives.
3: That's a good point. Um, My father actually has no problem with me playing Sims. Uh, It's actually a rule that was uh, introduced to me through other people other muslim people who we met here in australia uh, so it comes through the character of a friend the daughter of one of my father's friends who sort of judges me for playing sims because um, that she was told that it's playing god and you shouldn't you know that's not something that we do uh, so that wasn't necessarily real for my father my father had no problem uh, but it, you're right it's sort of this idea of how like controlling people and you know is it okay to tell people what to do when that's exactly how we live our lives we're told what we what we can and we can't do um, and even in that chapter as well it's actually the daughter of um, that friend so the young girl who told me that I wasn't I shouldn't be playing sims uh, that is actually controlling all of the people in the, you know In in that particular chapter, she controls her father, she tells her father what to do, and she tells my father what to do, and tells my mother what to do. Um, So it's this sort of like fraught idea of what's the moral thing here? Like, is it wrong to tell people what to do? Or are you just saying that because um, you've been told by someone else?
0: Culturally, you're also asked, not just in the Muslim community, but in uh, Christian communities and the like, we're told in some ways what to do, how to behave. That whole cultural imposition is almost like uh, people uh, setting rules by which we must abide.
3: That's right. And that's, I mean, that's an inherent part of living that we all live by particular rules and it's just about understanding the why behind the rule like why does it exist like questioning it and that's something that I've learned as I've grown older I mean like I still did question them as a child but um, I think as I've grown older it's sort of these rules that have come from my father or if they've come from my family or my culture uh, I'm finding that it's not necessarily more negotiable but there's a greater understanding of why they're in place or why for that particular point in time, my father or my family chose to raise us that way. Now, there's still yet another
0: level in this memoir. You draw parallels with the development going on in your own family. So you're developing as an adolescent, but your parents are negotiating, shall we say, their marriage, but at the same time, they are advocating for the very principles and traditions that they are struggling with in their own lives, but they're imposing those on
3: you. Yes, and I think that part of this revelation that we make as we grow older, that our parents are human beings and that they have their own struggles. And sometimes they say things that aren't absolute and then they change their minds or they, they're negotiating themselves as well. As we're growing, they're growing too. And that's something that I really wanted to illustrate in this book is that my parents are human and they make mistakes just as I make mistakes and they change their minds. But they're growing in this system in the same way that I am. And it can be it can be messy. But I think that's a beautiful part of it is that as I've grown older, I've gotten to grow, grow with them as well.
0: Would I be correct in saying this? an element of disillusionment in your father's life in taking on the challenges of finding work and negotiating uh, the Australian uh, social context, Uh, but he's also facing cancer as well. How are you portraying your father here?
3: Yeah, I think he has tried really hard for a very long time to be what people expect him to be to try and change his way and to not become across as you know quote-unquote aggressive to you know to be accommodating but there's a certain point in time and I think that point when my father is like he's getting his chemotherapy the nurses around him aren't being very compassionate towards him they call him difficult because you know, they can't find the vein in his arm when they're trying to administer the chemo. And it's just like those moments where it genuinely feels unfair that he's being characterized in that way. So I think that it's just, it gets tiring sometimes. I think he's tried for many years to be something. And if there's any point, if there's any note of disillusionment in there then I really can't blame him. I think it's been really tough.
0: Well, it's exhausting for anybody Living between and in two cultures.
3: That's right. That's really what this book is about. Yeah.
0: And more so also for the children of those that have migrated because you're negotiating two cultures. Do you think you claim your independence at the end of the novel?
3: It depends on what independence means. If it's independence, as now my family sees me as an agent of my own, that I'm, you know, that now that I've moved on into. I don't want to go any spoilers, sorry, (laughs) but in terms of being accountable to and wanting to meet my family's expectations, I don't think I'll ever be completely independent. It's sort of a part of our culture where it's not like when you become 18 that you leave and that's it, you're your own person. It's like you're always tied to your family and that's who you are. So you're always trying to make sure that you maintain those connections and uh, yeah, so it's I, I wouldn't say full independence, but I don't think that's ever, that would ever be achievable.
0: Well, Sarah, it's an interesting memoir. As I say, it's very layered. There's what is expected in a cross-cultural exchange, but I think you go beyond that, which is fascinating. The memoir is entitled "Muddy People." The author is Sarah El Sayed, and it is a black. Inc. book publication. So, Sarah, thank you very much for talking with me today.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.
3: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthew.3cr.org.au.